In the almost complete darkness of the 27th of February, 1942, 120 men from the newly formed Parachute Regiment jumped from their planes over Normandy and landed quietly on a snow-covered field. They were on the bold mission to steal technology from a new German radar installation that was causing heavy losses on Allied aircraft. The risk of the total loss of Frost's company is in some ways reflective of the kind of desperate situation that the nation was in. But the stakes were higher than that. The war was going very badly. Churchill desperately needed some good news to bolster the country's morale. If this German threat hadn't have been countered by this raid, the war could have ended very differently. This is the story of seven of the men that took part in that sensational operation. Sadly, not all of them would make it out unharmed. They were the Night Raiders of Normandy. I'm Bruce Crompton, history fanatic, military antique collector and ex-paratrooper. In Amazing War Stories, you're going to hear about incredible actions, all taken from records housed in museum collections. It's only by unearthing these wonderful tales that I hope to keep these important institutions and the heroes contained within them alive for future generations. On the 5th of December 1941, on a wind-swept cliff in Normandy, France, a small black radar dish detected an inbound aircraft. The German operators passed on the details to Luftwaffe command at Le Havre. This was the second time in as many days that a plane had buzzed the installation. The aircraft was a Spitfire, flown by Flight Lieutenant Tony Hill. But it was a plane with a difference. On board, in addition to the usual eight Browning machine guns, were three high-resolution cameras, two on the wings and one in the fuselage. He'd bravely come back for another attempt at reconnaissance photographs of the Nazi installation. His pictures from the previous day had missed what he had fleetingly seen with his own eyes, a large black bowl on a stand in a pit. He was determined not to blow it a second time, and the weather was perfect. He flew down even closer to the target and fired off several frames. When he returned to Willingham later that day, the astonishing photographs he had taken set in motion one of the greatest and most daring raids of the Second World War. You can see his pictures on our Amazing War Stories Facebook page or Instagram site. Anyway, the Allied planners believed that the operation, if successful, could literally save hundreds of thousands of lives and shorten the war. Not only that, Churchill thought it would also silence the detractors of the newly formed Parachute Brigade. One of my favourite places to see artefacts from this legendary unit 
is at the Airborne Resort Museum in Duxford. As well as telling the story of the Airborne Forces, it also houses the Parachute Regiment's historical collection. It's a wonderful exhibition, but I suppose I'm biased, however, being a former para myself. One display that always captures my attention is the amazing model planning boards which were created in preparation for this raid. They've now been designated as an exhibit of national importance. So if you get the chance, go and have a look. They're truly remarkable. John Baker is the curator of the museum and he told me why the mission was so crucial. Operation Biting was absolutely critical for Britain, for Prime Minister Winston Churchill and for the Parachute Regiment. At this stage in the war, public morale was low. You know, you had people living in cities and towns all across Britain who'd uh, lost loved ones already in the conflict and you also had extensive bombing of the UK. And quite rightly, many people in the country were saying, when is the fight going to be taken to the enemy? So Churchill needed a success. The operation came about as the result of one clever man's thinking, a scientist called Dr. Reginald Jones. He realised the Germans must have developed a superior radar. It was Jones who persuaded the RAF to take the reconnaissance photos, which led directly to the planning of this operation. And thank goodness he did, because those photographs would prove his suspicions right. But now, however, he needed to know how this new technology worked. He had to get his hands on it. This small radar sat on top of a well-defended cliff behind enemy lines. The only way to get to it would be from the air, and so it was an ideal mission to test the services of a newly created military unit. The 1st Parachute Brigade, part of the 1st Airborne Division, had been formed just six weeks earlier. They had yet to see action, and their men, mostly volunteers, were largely untested in combat. It would be an ambitious first assignment for this unloved unit. Many in the corridors of power thought the parachute forces were a folly, a drain on vital war resources. However, Churchill was determined. The stakes couldn't be higher. Failure would not only jeopardise the future of the new regiment, but also the Prime Minister himself. In Scotland, Using the intelligence gleaned from Flight Lieutenant Hill's pictures, the planners at Combined Operation Headquarters in Loch Fine worked on a plan to steal the German radar equipment. A successful operation, they believed, would require an entire company of parachutists. Not only that, the raiders would also need support from accompanying radar specialists, sapper engineers, commandos, RAF air cover and a flotilla of various naval vessels. It truly was a joint services operation. Churchill gave his approval and the raid was on. Troops from the Parachute Regiment 2nd Battalion were selected for this arduous mission. The men of C Company were formed from tough volunteers from various Scottish regiments, including the famous Black Watch. But this wasn't just a Scottish operation. The earmarking of a troop of Welsh commandos to support the paratroopers' escape would mean this was a truly British mission. 
a national news story that would bolster a beleaguered nation. C Company was headed by Englishman Major John Frost. He was a determined officer who, born and raised in India, had seen some action in the Middle East but had yet to fight in Europe. The 30-year-old desperately wanted to get stuck in directly against the Germans. He was soon to get his wish. After being informed his company had been selected for a special assignment, Frost got straight to work. The next few months saw relentless jump training whilst the Combined Operations Group continued to work on every aspect of the attack. Lieutenant Colonel Richard Lewin is a current serving member of the Parachute Regiment and commanding officer of the 4th Battalion. Previously, he was second in command of 2Para. He explained the complexities of planning a raid. Surprise is absolutely critical to an operation like this because it enables you to approach the objective from a direction of your choosing at a time of your choosing, but also you'll be doing it at a time that the enemy is least expecting you. The joint planners would have considered three main phases. The infiltration or insurgent by parachute, you know, how you get the troops in. The action on the objective, how they're going to move across the ground and steal the radar equipment. And then the third phase would have been the extraction or the exfil. And this is where the Navy comes into play to take Frost Company off the beach and critically get the radar equipment back to the UK. Over in France, a French resistance agent, codenamed Charlemagne, was given orders to go and find out more about Bruneval for the British. The planners at Combined Operations thought a beach a few hundred metres south of the radar at the bottom of the cliff would be a perfect place for an exfil. But they needed to know precisely what was protecting it. Along with a colleague and posing as students from Paris, they approached the guard who manned the barrier crossing the beach road. Charlemagne explained he wished to see the sea for one last time before he went back to the city. The guard, probably bored and certainly not very bright, let the French agents through. On the walk down the road to the seafront, the agents noted two machine gun bunkers and barbed wire. So far, everything could be easily dealt with, Charlemagne thought. That was until he saw the signs that read Achtung Meinen all over the place. Apparently, the whole cove was rigged to explode as soon as anybody touched foot on it. Back in the UK, Major Frost and his men were hard at work. Not only had they been jump training, but they are also learning how to embark on landing craft with the Royal Navy. The RAF had also been hard at it. This was the largest airborne drop they had ever undertaken, and their pilots did multiple practice runs dropping dummy parachutes on various different targets. Unfortunately for all groups, poor weather had meant mission training was behind schedule. However, there could be no delay. The allocation of this many resources and the risk of the Germans discovering the plan meant it had to happen in just four weeks. The operation 
was at once seemingly simple, but also had a lot of moving parts, each of which had to work like clockwork if the mission was to succeed. The attack force would be divided into five units, Nelson, Hardy, Drake, Jellicoe and Rodney, each named after a famous British Admiral. Company Commander Major Frost would head up the unit Hardy, the first of three 10-man assault teams that would attack near the vicinity of the radar. Alongside him would be Company Sergeant Major Jerry Strachan, an archetypal Scotsman and a no-nonsense soldier who could put the fear of God in any man. The pair of them would lead an assault on a cliff-top villa positioned next to the radar station. The building was believed to house the Luftwaffe soldiers who operated the dish and was therefore a key objective. Simultaneously, the second group, codenamed Drake, were to try and contain a group of the enemy soldiers based in buildings just north of the villa. This is where the planners thought the first counter-attack would come from. Meanwhile, the ten men from Jellicoe would capture the radar installation near the cliff edge. The key man in this team was actually an RAF flight sergeant called Charles Cox. He was absolutely crucial to the success of the raid as he was considered to be the best radar technician in the country. The only problem was, despite being in the RAF, he had never been near a parachute. The common view of World War II parachuting is parachutists jumping out the side door of a Dakota. In this case, the converted Whitney bomber was exactly that. It was a bomber. It, it can, you could fit 10 parachutists in, and they literally jumped through a hole or a pipe in the floor, which was located in the old bomb hatch. And the parachutists would sit on the edge of the tube and sort of drop themselves down and then out into the air one at a time. This was known as jumping through the hole. The difficulties with this method of uh, exit from the aircraft is the tightness of the pipe meant that it was difficult to carry your own personal equipment and so that had to be dropped separately. It was also the case that reserve parachutes weren't used because of the space. And finally, a parachutist had to get himself through the hole without bashing his nose on the opposite side. So that would have been at the forefront of their mind. Four of the Whitleys would carry Lieutenant John Timothy and his group, codenamed Rodney. They would have the unenviable task of repelling any southern counterattack that might come from a garrison of Wehrmacht soldiers based in the nearby village of Bruneveld. Finally, the last group, Nelson, had perhaps the most important task of all. Forty men strong, they were to take and hold a landing beach a few hundred metres away from the top of the cliff. Without them, there would be no escape. In charge of this key group was Scotsman Captain John Ross. Accompanying him was a young public school educated lieutenant called Ewan Basil Cyril Charteris, the son of a distinguished brigadier. Charteris, also known as Junior, was at 20 the youngest man in the attack and was very different from the rest of the burly Scots under his command. Nevertheless, he was still very well liked. On the 24th of February, training was finally over and the men prepared for action. Frost felt that despite their rush preparations, they had more than a fighting chance. Telling his commanding officer that C Company were an outstanding body of men. 
That Friday, in complete secrecy, the men loaded onto their lorries and travelled to the RAF base where the Whitney planes waited. For some, it would be their last time on British soil. The legend you're about to hear is taken entirely from eyewitness testimony and documents that were written shortly after the events. Everything is true, no matter how extraordinary it sounds. The light in the Whitley switched from red to green. Go! shouted the RF sergeants as the men of C Company jumped in at the freezing air. The rustle of the parachutes and the thump of the men landing in the snow was the only sound other than the planes flying overhead. So far, so good. It looked like the Germans were completely unaware of their presence. As far as Major Frost could tell, all groups had made the jump successfully. Running to the weapon canisters, the men grabbed their guns. They were incredibly lightly armed for such a mission, with mainly Lee-Enfield rifles, Sten submachine carbines and Bren light machine guns. To go and fight a battle, a soldier has to carry you know, certain key bits of equipment, their weapons, their communications kit. In actual fact, soldiers over the years carry the same weight on average. The difference, of course, is the, uh, the technology that's carried. Uh, back in World War II, Frost Company carried bolt-action rifles and small submachine guns. And I think the, the heaviest weapon they would have had with them probably was a Bren gun. These days, we'd carry sort of slightly more advanced weaponry, but we'd carry more ammunition. But of course, the metric is what the enemy have. In 1942, the German soldiers defending the radar station were fairly rudimentary in their equipment also. Now, fully armed, Frost crunched off through the snow with his men to the rendezvous point. Once there, he encountered his first setback. Lieutenant Junior Charteris and 20 of his men were nowhere to be seen. Captain Ross and the remainder of Nelson Group would have to try and take the beachhead objective at the bottom of the valley by themselves. Frost knew it was impossible to change the plan. If Ross couldn't subdue the Germans who blocked the access to the beach, then they would all be captured for sure. Pushing this to the back of his mind, he and Hardy Group set off up the hill to capture the first objective, the clifftop villa they called Lone House. As per the plan, Drake team went to protect the northern perimeter from counterattack, and the final team, Jellico, ran towards the radar. The silence was disconcerting. Frost thought the Germans would be all over them by now. Clearly, they'd been caught totally unaware. But the reality was very different. The Germans had been watching their approach on the radar and were already gathering their forces. The Wehrmacht soldier in charge of the beach defences had been radioed. The enemy had guessed 
the seafront was probably going to be used as an exfil point by the British raiders. The defenders began quickly reorganising the machine gun nests to point towards the north. The direction the escaping paratroopers would probably descend from. Meanwhile, Charteris and the missing 20 men from Nelson Group had been accidentally dropped two miles away into a different valley. He had no idea where they were or which direction they should go in. Sending a couple of men to scout around, they came back to confirm his suspicions. They had ended up south of Bruneval village. They needed to head north in double time to help Ross secure the beach. The fastest way to do that was to run down the road that passed through the hamlet. It was a good plan, apart from the fact that there was a garrison of German soldiers occupying it. Charteris felt they didn't have a choice and his men set off at a jog towards the small town. Two miles to the northwest, however, all the teams were in position and were waiting for Frost's signal. Four brass on a whistle. He walked calmly to the door of the French villa. It was wide open. Playing his whistle hard, his men sprang into action. Company Sergeant Major Strachan threw a couple of grenades down the stairs into the basement and sprayed the room with his stem. But nobody was there. Over at the radar pit, a lone sentry challenged Jellicoe's leader. Hi. Lieutenant Young, who in turn quickly dispatched him. His men cleared the rest of the emplacement and then called in the radar expert Cox and his sappers. Enemy soldiers scattered everywhere, terrified by the assault. Young managed to capture one and dragged him towards Frost, who had an interpreter with him. Come in. Suddenly, enemy shooting rang out from the nearby villa. A German was firing from one of the windows towards the advancing sappers. Strachan rushed upstairs and emptied his magazine. Things were now beginning to heat up, and as predicted, the enemy guards based in the north buildings opened fire. Team Drake responded, trying to suppress them. Back at the house, Frost was glad to have a prisoner and started to interrogate him. The information he gave up was vital. Ask him what he knows. Yes, sir. Fast boys do. Apparently, there were about 100 soldiers to the north and over 200 in Bruneville. If this were true and all the enemy troops were brought to bear, Frost and his men would be severely outnumbered. I'm sure it would have taken enormous self-control not to become overwhelmed by these odds. It must have seemed like they had bitten off more than they could chew. Just then, as if to prove a point, a young private called McIntyre was killed, picked off by a sniper. It was the first death in C Company. The key trait that we look for in a paratrooper is ABI. And that stands for Airborne Initiative. And that means that when the chips are down and everything's going wrong, which is totally expected in the world of a paratrooper, 
that he has the good judgment to find their way through the problem and achieve the objective no matter what the situation. A good example of Frost's ABI was how he handled the information that was given to him by the German prisoner in terms of the overwhelming force that they were potentially going to face. Uh, Frost knew that if he overreacted to that information, he'd start affecting the plan that the other paratroopers were enacting on the ground. And he knew that his best chance was to, to put that information into a pocket, be aware of it, but to continue on with the operation as planned. A mile to the southeast, however, in Brunewald, Charteris and the rest of his men from Nelson were unbelievably running through the village in which the enemy infantry company was garrisoned. This seemingly insane gamble was helped by the darkness and the snow deadening their footsteps. Suddenly, up ahead, some Germans appeared. The team ducked behind a line of houses and continued their jog towards the beach. Their marked soldier, confused in the darkness, thought that the British were his own men, running to the battle, and so he fell in with them. It was an unfortunate mistake, and the last he would make, as he was permanently removed with the aid of a commando dagger. But at the beachhead, without Charteris and his men, Ross and the rest of Nelson had quickly become pinned down. Up the hill from Ross, by the radar dish, Cox and his engineering team were struggling to get at the German technology. His screwdriver wasn't quite long enough to reach some of the depressed bolts, so they had to resort to brute force. Not only that, it was hard to see, so the sappers started to use flashlights, but this meant they then became an easy target for German snipers. It must have seemed to Frost that the plan was beginning to unravel. Hello, I hope you're enjoying this episode of Amazing War Stories. I'm Ed Sayer, co-founder and producer of this show, and I just wanted to tell you about our new website, AmazingWarStories.com. Inside, you can find out more about our podcast, take a deep dive into some of the weapons and equipment used by our heroes, or you can sign up to our awesome newsletter, where we give you the lowdown on military museums, host fun reader polls, and of course, feature little-known amazing war stories that Bruce and I have come across during our research. So after you finish listening, please take time to visit, and if you think you have an amazing war story you'd like us to feature, then do get in touch. Just click on the link on our show notes. AmazingWarStories.com, the home of military heroes. But the gods of fortune must have been looking after Frost and his men that night. Just as they were looking into the jaws of defeat, the raiders got a break. To the south, down in the valley, they heard a cry of Cabafay! The war cry of the Scotsman. Lieutenant Charteris and his team had arrived and were engaging the German defences, which were still pinning down Ross's men. Major Frost knew he had to move. He told the sappers that they had enough radar equipment. Anything else that they couldn't take, they were to photograph instead. They must take advantage of Charteris's arrival. The teams of Drake, 
Jellicoe and Hardy began a hasty withdrawal towards the steep slope which led to the beach. The going was slow as the ground was icy and uneven. But the sight of the paratroopers retreating emboldened the attacking Germans and they began to press forward from the north. Frost's men were now in danger of being caught in a vice between enemy defenders. Then another blow. An MG42 rang out from the high ground to the south. The legendary Scottish CSM, Jerry Strachan, crumpled over. He'd been hit in the stomach. Lieutenant Colonel Lewin explains why this was a key moment. So in any company in the British Army, the company sergeant major is a major figurehead. He's, he's often the man that the soldiers want to be because he's the senior soldier, he's got the experience. When Strachan got hit, it would definitely have had an effect across the company. In the British Army, we train for these eventualities. We expect people in key appointments to be wounded or killed. So what would have happened is he would have been looked after as a casualty, but another member of the company would have stepped up and taken his place. Strachan was given morphine and dragged out of the way. Behind them, the Germans had now taken the house. The situation was beginning to look desperate. Major Frost turned back with his group and engaged the enemy's rearguard assault. After a brief firefight, the inexperienced German troops fell back from the savage and unexpected counterattack. The whole of C Company were fighting like caged animals. They had to smash their way out, and their tenacity and ferocity were starting to pay dividends. Down in the valley, the other part of Nelson Group, led by Charteris, scythed through the German beach defences. Running down the middle of the road, this new onslaught from an unexpected quarter caused the enemy to scatter. The time was about 2am. They'd been fighting for over an hour and a half. On the now secured beach, the sappers started minesweeping, but they couldn't find anything. The German danger signs erected around the beach were just a bluff. It was totally clear. Frost was relieved. Finally, it looked like things were going their way. But when he got to the shore, the landing craft were nowhere to be seen. Not only that, Lieutenant Timothy, who was defending the flank with the Rodney team, got on the radio. Headlights from the direction of the town were approaching. The German counterattack was now fully underway. Okay, chaps, it looks like we've got company. Frost ordered that flares be sent up to signal to the landing craft. If they didn't come soon, this whole operation would have been for nothing. Up above on the high ground, Timothy's men engaged the approaching Germans and a ferocious firefight broke out. Frost was worried that if the enemy troops had mortars, it would soon be curtains for them. Stuck on the beach, it would have been like shooting fish in a barrel as they had nowhere to hide. Out at sea, the British naval commander spotted the signal. 
As soon as they saw the flares, they started their run towards the beach. About 250 yards out, the radios finally came back into range. The paratroopers were understandably jubilant. With the evacuation underway, Timothy and his men began a fighting retreat to the beach, whilst the Welsh commandos set up a defensive perimeter. This time, it was the Germans who were pinned down, as the escaping paratroopers boarded the landing craft. At 3.15am, the raiders were finally away. The last craft left the beach exactly three hours after the first paratroopers hit the ground. 30 minutes later, all the men and their precious cargo had been transferred to the powerful motor gunboats, which took them back to Portsmouth. The raid was an unparalleled success. John Baker, curator of the Regimental Museum at Duxford, explained what impact it had. You just cannot overestimate the importance of this operation. It was front page news across all the papers. The photographs were distributed widely. The stories were published everywhere. But the PR value perhaps eclipsed the more important aspect of the raid. They learned so much, not only from the prisoners they brought back, but also from the components. So they understood exactly how German radar worked and they could extrapolate from that countermeasures to make it far less effective and protect our bomber forces. Stories such as these are so important and we hope they'll encourage people to come and visit not only our museum to learn about the Parachute Regiment, but also the wide plethora of regimental museums across the UK. Thankfully for the Paras, the casualty list on this mission was low, although sadly two were killed. And four more were missing, captured in the chaos of the escape. Major Johnny Frost survived and went on to command the 2nd Parachute Battalion in North Africa, Sicily, Italy and finally Arnhem. Post-war, he rose to the rank of Major General. Anthony Hopkins played him in the famous film A Bridge Too Far. It's amazing to think that despite the conflict they experienced, all but one of the seven heroes survived through to the end of the war. Perhaps... Most heartbreakingly of all, it was the young Lieutenant Ewan Chartres who didn't make it. It's a cruel irony that the man who arguably saved all the Night Raiders when he took the beachhead was killed in Africa just seven months later. We also mustn't forget about the French resistance heroes who provided the intelligence for this raid. The French agent Charlemagne was sadly captured tortured and executed shortly afterwards. His real name was Charles Chavot. A last word from Lieutenant Colonel Lewin. This battle honour is so important to our regiment that C Company and Two Barra is still called Bruneville Company today. When I think about it now, if fighting hadn't have been successful, you know, there is a decent chance, I would suggest, that the Parachute Regiment wouldn't exist as it does today and I wouldn't be sitting here talking to you wearing the cap badge that I'm so very proud of. If you want to find out more about this operation and the many others the Parachute Regiment took part in, then please do visit the museum in Duxford. You can find a link in our show notes. 
I really want to help museums, both big and small, in these difficult times. They've taken a financial battering, and I'm worried that if we're not careful, the important stories they hold will become locked away from the public forever. Please take the time to rate this podcast, as it helps it to be found by other listeners. One final thing, a word of thanks to the people, museums and organisations who, free of charge, gave up their time to help me tell this story. This episode of Amazing War Stories was researched, written and produced by Ed Sayer. The executive producer is Paul Wooding and the associate producer is Lois Crompton. Sound design and 3D mastering is by Vaudeville Sound and music is by Extreme Music. Music